0: Greetings all and welcome to the Untold History Podcast. First things first, this is a new podcast series about the reign of King Edward VI of England, son of King Henry VIII. It is not a podcast about King Henry VIII. I want to make that clear and prepare you in advance, because he is very interesting and certainly worthy of a podcast series, which is probably why so many others have recorded them before, and why I choose to spare you from yet another. This is to be known as the Untold History Podcast. Now I realise that this is not strictly true, and the story of King Edward VI is not literally untold, even by podcasters. However, the aim of this series is to go into greater detail of some of the topics of history that have not received so much attention in history lessons and in the media and the arts. I believe that Edward's reign fits neatly into this category sandwiched as it is between those of his famous father and better-remembered elder half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth I. The reasons why I believe this is a story worth telling will, I hope, become clear, but suffice to say the six-year reign is filled with great characters, thrilling moments and surprising twists, as well as being crucial in the development of the Protestant religion. In the interest of transparency, I should also note that I am not an historian, certainly not a qualified one, I am merely someone with a keen interest in English history, and the Tudor age in particular, who has read a lot of books on the subject. My opinion is in no way authoritative. It may come as a surprise, but I am not Lucy Worsley, nor am I David Starkey. I don't even sound very much like either of them. However, I do care about accuracy and will always do my best to pick my sources carefully and not speculate while portraying such speculation as fact. The number of history magazine inches, podcast minutes, TV series, radio dramas and book pages dedicated to King Henry VIII of England, his reign and of course his six wives is immeasurable. He is England's most famous king for a reason, his character and the events of his 38-year reign compelling. To those of you who are hungry for more such Henry content, I must inform you that that's not what I'm going to provide with this series except for this episode where I talk about his later years, later marriages, and his death. This is not a story about the reign of King Henry. Yet for those who cannot do without him, his presence still looms over many of the events of the short reign of his only surviving son. And crucially, we cannot understand the reign of Edward the Sixth without putting it in the context of the first half of the 16th century, when the Tudors rose as the new de facto rulers of the kingdom. Therefore, this first episode, which deals with the events that bring us to the reign of Edward VI, may well be some people's favourite, so you should at least listen to the end of this episode before passing judgement. The boy that would become Henry VIII was a prince never born to be a king. The second son of his father, Henry VII, Henry Tudor, the founder of the Tudor dynasty, was simply a spare until the early death of his elder brother Arthur in 1502, aged just 15, With the Tudors having won the throne from Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, Arthur had been the jewel in the crown of England's new rulers. Named for the legendary King Arthur, he of pulling sword from stone and round table fame, Henry VII consciously built a mythos around his firstborn, and invested much in preparing his son to succeed to the throne upon his death. Arthur represented the union of the long-warring houses of Lancaster and York, the marriage of his parents, Henry Tudor and Elizabeth of York, uniting the belligerents of the Wars of the Roses by blood. It was a marriage that crucially solidified what was undoubtedly a very shaky claim to the throne by the Tudors. The second son, Henry, a pious boy, was widely expected to have a career in the church. He also expected to live his life in the shadow of Prince and then King Arthur, and indeed did so until his brother's death. If Henry VIII was not born to be a king, then the exact opposite could be said of his son. Prince Edward was the last child born to Henry VIII, and the longed-for embodiment of all the hopes and dreams for which his father had placed the realm through so much turmoil. Had Catherine of Aragon conceived of a son that had survived into adolescence and adulthood, Henry would, in my humble opinion, not have divorced her regardless of her unfortunate yet uncontrollable ageing and any attraction he may have felt to other ladies around the court. In 1537, 28 years into the reign, the birth of a healthy boy after so much strife unleashed unfettered joy across the nation, tempered only by the decline and sad death of his mother, Jane Seymour, less than a fortnight later, probably as a result of infection, untreatable with the medicine of the time. The third wife of six, Jane delivered, literally, what her predecessors had failed to do, a male child that survived early infancy and would outlive his father. In death, Jane's place in her widower's affections was assured, and Henry would be buried alongside her a decade and three more wives later. Many people are unaware that Catherine of Aragon did, in fact, give birth to a son by Henry VIII, Somewhat unimaginatively, yet indicative of her husband's ego, the boy named Henry arrived at the turn of the new year, 1511, less than two years into the reign. Alas, the new heir died a mere 52 days later, depriving his father and the realm of the certainty of succession that would have rendered many of the later famed events of the reign unnecessary. It would, however, also have deprived us of the incredible story of England's most famous king, and arguably even the development of its nascent reformed religion, much more of that later. Two more boys would follow for the royal parents in the next three years, but neither of them would live more than a few days at most. By the mid-1520s, Henry began to realise that his wife would never bear him a living son, Not only that, he had become obsessed with Anne Boleyn, the daughter of courtier Thomas Boleyn, later Viscount of Rochford and Sir Thomas. He initially wanted her simply as a mistress, like many others before her, including her sister Mary. But Anne, sensing opportunity and well-advised by her family, who sensed the same, was too savvy to accept this. Then, of course, comes the often-told story of Henry's protracted divorce from Catherine of Aragon and his three-year marriage to Anne, who, like her predecessor, also ultimately failed to bear the king a living son. This failure would cost Anne her life, and she would famously be executed on mostly unbelievable charges of infidelity and incest, orchestrated by Henry's chief advisor, Thomas Cromwell. Anne was a strong-spirited woman, and she was succeeded by a much more placid and malleable individual in Jane Seymour. Although it is difficult to ascertain true appearance from the small amount of portraits that exist of individuals from the Tudor era, the ones that do exist of Jane portray, by modern standards, a somewhat plain lady in a gable hood, pale, still, and stoic. Little of her personality can be discerned, yet contemporary accounts of Jane, for example that of the imperial ambassador Eustace Chapuis, remark on her meek and gentle nature. Chapuis spoke of her as... No great beauty, so fair that one would call her rather pale than otherwise. Compared to his opinion of her predecessor Anne, this constituted great praise indeed. Chapuis refused to call Anne Queen, and is said to have referred to her as the concubine. As Antonia Fraser says, Jane was exactly the kind of female praised by the contemporary handbooks to correct conduct, just as Anne Boleyn had been the sort they warned against. Henry's relationship with Anne could certainly be described as an infatuation. It isn't known precisely when she first came to his attention, but David Starkey dates the beginning of his feelings for her to the winter of 1524 to 1525, when Anne would have been aged anywhere between 25 and 31 years old. Her exact birth date is a mystery lost to time, but most historians place it between 1501 and 1507. Anne had returned to England from France, where she had grown up, serving as a lady-in-waiting to the French Queen, for early plans were afoot for her to marry her distant cousin, James Butler. However, it seems marriage arrangements developed slowly. There was a distinct lack of spark between the two, and Anne's father, Sir Thomas, was less than enthusiastic for the match. The King then began to take an interest in the relationship between Anne and James, instructing his faithful servant Cardinal Wolsey to intervene and find reason to block the nuptials, which, in truth, did not seem to have advanced greatly anyway. The exotic Anne, with her French ways, attracted much attention at the English court, and at some point became betrothed to the courtier and aristocrat, Henry Percy. Initially, Henry meant to have Anne as a mistress, but when she refused this arrangement, likely seeing the fate of the king's other mistresses, her sister included, he was prepared to go so far as to make her his wife in order to have her. This simply would not have been on the agenda had he not been disillusioned with his existing marriage to Catherine of Aragon. The king was, for all his lasciviousness in youth and early middle age, a pious man, who did not take the ending of his marriage lightly. Yet such was his desperation for male heir. That he was prepared to cast aside his wife of 24 years for another, younger, more fertile bride in his desperation to continue the Tudor line with a male heir to succeed him. Henry was prepared to move mountains to make Anne his bride and the new Queen of England. His love rival Henry Percy was gently persuaded to make way for the king, and Anne Boleyn finally became Queen of England in June 1533. Following the protracted and much discussed break from Rome of the English Church, of which Henry became head. The marriage for which he had fought so hard famously did not ultimately live up to the king's expectations. Catherine of Aragon may have faded in Henry's affections after so many years and was now stripped of her title as queen consort, but she was undeniably a woman more suited to the role of 16th century queen than was Anne Boleyn. Anne is known as Anne of a Thousand Days, because that is how long she lasted as Queen. The three-year marriage was characterised by passionate arguments and reconciliation. The first great strife came when the couple's first child was disappointingly a girl, delivered in September of 1533. Attentive listeners may note that since this was just four months after the marriage, the child must have been conceived outside of wedlock. The girl who would become Queen Elizabeth I, and perhaps the greatest monarch of the Tudor age, was a bitter disappointment to her father at the time, who had been confident of a son, and even assured of one by fortune tellers. Yet for the while, he remained confident that boys would follow. Meanwhile though, all was not well in the royal marriage. Anne's strong character and forceful personality may have been attractive in a mistress, yet they were not so endearing in a queen, She found it hard to defer to her husband as was expected of her, and blazing rows between the royal couple were commonplace. While the pair made up in the earlier stages of the marriage, the cracks were there for all to see, and the lustful fire that had burned so brightly while Henry could not have Anne began to go cool when the reality of everyday life replaced dream and fantasy. Like the queen she replaced, Anne too would come to know what it was like to be cast aside for another woman, But while Catherine was allowed to retire to a peaceful, if bitter, life, Anne, of course, met a more violent end on Tower Hill. Henry was already courting Jane Seymour when Anne was executed on largely trumped-up charges. Mirroring her predecessor, Jane had also been a lady-in-waiting to her queen. Two more years of failed pregnancies, along with her headstrong personality, had rendered Anne an irritant to the king who was all too willing to believe the worst of her morals, if indeed he had not actively instructed his advisers, Cromwell in particular, to find reason to bring her down. Anne's compelling story and bloody death by the sword assured her place in history, but what of her successor, Jane Seymour? Firstly, her reign was short, and in such limited time she had little chance to fall in the King's grace, Crucially, as we have discussed, she was also able to provide the king with what he so desired, a living male heir in Edward, born some 18 months after his parents' marriage. Jane, of course, would ultimately not survive the prince's birth. Though things initially seemed well, childbirth in Tudor times was a far more dangerous ordeal than today. The labour was difficult, and she was dead less than two weeks later. The king truly grieved her loss. Though it seems entirely reasonable to speculate that had he been given a choice between a living son and a living wife, he would have chosen the former without too much thought. Prince Edward was christened at Hampton Court just a few days before his mother succumbed to the complications of her childbirth, the specifics of which are undocumented, though puerperal fever has been suggested. His sisters Mary and Elizabeth played key roles in the ceremony, as did any courtier worth their salt. A preeminent position in the christening was the mark of royal favour and status at court. No surprise then to see Edward Seymour, Jane's elder brother, and for a few more days at least, brother-in-law to the king, assisting the princess Elizabeth in bearing the prince's chrism cloth, a small piece of linen laid over the child's head as a symbol of innocence. As brother to the queen, the eldest Seymour of the generation had risen in favour beyond his wildest dreams, he would be a key figure in the next reign, for a time the most powerful man in the land, more so than the child king he served, though on the day of the christening he was not to know that his time as brother of the Queen was almost through. Queen Jane dies the 24th of October 1537, a little shy of 30 years of age, and was buried in St George's Chapel Windsor Castle the next month. Her widower, the king, now aged 46, would wear black mourning clothes for the next three months, genuinely distraught, yet comforted greatly by the fact that his new son appeared healthy and the succession was far more to his liking, Prince Edward now obviously taking precedence above his two half-sisters. Edward was to spend the early years of his life, as he noted himself in his diary, among the women. It was not a childhood as we would consider normal today, the future king had his own household away from court and saw very little of his father. This household was headed by the experienced Lady Margaret Bryan, who had performed the same role for Edward's elder sisters. Bryan would on occasion write to officials like Thomas Cromwell, bemoaning the lack of funds provided for her charge. For example, complaining to Cromwell in 1538 that the royal baby's nursery was too bare and that he had never a good jewel to set upon his cape. Cromwell, no doubt terrified at the reaction of his master if news got back to the king that his one-year-old son was not being provided with a lifestyle worthy of a prince, promptly transferred a vast sum of money over to Edward's household, amounting to something like £1.5 million in today's money. Satisfied, Lady Bryan would later write to the court that Edward was a healthy and merry baby, beginning to grow his first teeth, never at this time described as a sickly child, as he would later be characterised in large part as a result of his early death. Two years later, Henry was to be married once more, this time to German bride Anne of Cleves, as the king sought religious allies in Europe. It is well known that this Anne was not to Henry's taste physically, however. Hans Holbein had been sent to the Duchy of Cleves in 1539 to paint both Anne and her sister as potential brides for the King of England, who was pleased enough with that of Anne to advance negotiations to make her his wife. Their first meeting the next year, however, left the king shocked by her plain appearance, to his eye nothing like the flattering portrait painted by Holbein. But the marriage plans were too far advanced for the wedding to be called off, and Henry was left with no choice but to proceed with his fourth marriage. Holbein's esteem with the king consequently greatly suffered, and he fell hugely in reputation in England. Henry, however, failed to consummate the marriage, which had about as much chance of bearing children as Anne Boleyn's ghost. Indeed, Henry may well have been more attracted to the latter. He confided to some of his gentlemen that he did not believe Anne of Cleves was a virgin, and he found her even more distasteful in the marriage bed than he had fully clothed. He moved to have the marriage annulled as soon as possible, to which Anne sensibly agreed, and she did very well from that in the form of a generous settlement very much better than her three predecessors. For her compliance, she lived the rest of her life with precedence over all women in England, save for the king's latter wives and his two daughters. Next, the rapidly ageing king turned to a much younger woman in order to reinvigorate the passions necessary to beget the nation another heir. Catherine Howard was little more than a child when she married Henry, who was nearly fifty at the time of his fifth marriage. The pair were married on the 28th of July 1540, a mere 19 days after the official annulment of the king's marriage to Anne of Cleves. The fifth wife was not so far removed, familiarly, from his second, Catherine being a cousin of Anne Boleyn and the niece of the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Howard, who had secured a place for her at court. This marriage has something of the feel of a rich, older man who turns up to college in his sports car, picking up his attractive, but maybe too young, girlfriend. After his disastrous fourth marriage, it seems King Henry went for attraction above all else. Catherine Howard was a vivacious youth, someone who could make an ageing king feel young. Whether or not she wanted to be queen, she had little choice, as those around her capitalised on the king's latest infatuation and rapidly advanced marriage arrangements. The marriage itself took place quietly and without great fanfare on the 28th of July 1540, the same day as the execution of Thomas Cromwell, the king's faithful servant, adviser, who had fallen irrevocably from favour after the failure of the Cleves' marriage and the machinations of other leading courtiers against him, led by mainly religious conservatives like the Duke of Norfolk. Cromwell's profile has risen greatly in recent years, as a result of the huge success of Hilary Mantel's novels focusing on his life. His master the King later came to regret how others had manipulated him to be rid of Cromwell, an execution rushed through without trial and within two months of his initial arrest. No matter if he was undeserving of his fate, the chief advisor to the King and the successors to Cardinal Wolsey was gone his head on a spike at Tower Bridge and his reputation in tatters for centuries. By this time, Prince Edward was nearly three years old and developing well into the kind of heir for which the king had long desired. At court, his father sought spare heirs, remembering well the circumstances of his own rise to kingship and the fragility of life at the time. In his new bride he found a queen who lit his kingly fires and whose youth promised royal children to come. Queen Catherine Howard was young, naive, and ultimately ill-prepared to confront the intrigue of life at court. It is hard to believe that she found much attraction to the ageing, ever-expanding, ill-tempered King of England, and her personality was not suited to a quiet life of subservience to her husband, royal or not. She was not the innocent, virginal flower that the King had imagined her to be, and before long, stories from her past began to be revealed. It came to light that she had a sexual history with her former music teacher, Henry Maddox, while residing at the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk's household at Horsham, and later the Duchess's secretary, Francis Dearham. Furthermore, there were later accusations that she engaged in a relationship with the King's Groom of the Stool, Thomas Culpepper, at court and while Queen. It was said that she met with Culpepper secretly and sent him letters of an undeniably romantic nature, If her undisclosed sexual history prior to her marriage, whether or not she was abused and coerced into it, was not enough to doom her, then the accusations of impropriety and secret late-night meetings during the marriage most certainly were. Catherine was stripped of her title as Queen in November 1541, and a broken Henry lamented the true nature of his young, not-so-virtuous flower. Culpeper and Deerham were executed on the same day at Tyburn on the 10th of December 1541. While the former escaped with a simple beheading, Deerham suffered the full horrors of a 16th century traitor's death, being hanged, drawn and quartered. It clearly mattered little that his offences occurred before the king had married Catherine Howard. Culpepper enjoyed greater status and a close relationship with the king, and for this reason his sentence was commuted to beheading alone. The Queen's death by the same method followed on the 13th of February 1542. Before her death she made a speech admitting her offences and stating that she had deserved to die a thousand deaths. Five wives down and no offspring having resulted from his latest two marriages, in his sixth decade King Henry VIII was a widower and a bachelor once again. It is interesting to imagine how the King felt about this situation. He was a man of faith who had said his marriage vows, pledging to love each woman till death, and did part, five times. Four of his wives were indeed dead. Only Anne of Cleves, surviving matrimony with the King of England. Henry was now in increasing ill health, faced with his own mortality and fading manly prowess, yet still full of arrogance and keen for additional male heirs as an insurance policy should anything happen to Prince Edward. Five wives must become six. The king must marry once again. A third Catherine was the lucky lady this sixth and last time. Catherine Parr was some 13 years older than her immediate predecessor and namesake, and had been married twice before. The fact that these previous marriages had not resulted in children, surprisingly, did not seem to put the king off. The couple married in July 1543. Catherine having caught the king's eye as part of the household of his daughter, the Princess Mary. Portraits of Catherine show her to be a more attractive woman to the contemporary eye than some of her predecessors have been portrayed. Her attraction, or otherwise, to the king, however, can only be imagined. It has been stated that she saw marriage to Henry as more of a duty than a genuine desire, and Catherine was said to have been far more keen to marry Thomas Seymour, brother of the late King Jane and the elder Edward Seymour, she would later marry Thomas on the king's death, rather too soon after her third husband's demise than was decent for some, the nuptials taking place just months after Henry's death in 1547. Yet Catherine proved a successful queen. Though her marriage with Henry did not result in any children, it was at least a partnership of respects and free of overt scandal. Henry also appeared to trust his final wife enough to leave her in charge of the realm as regent while he was away on his final, unsuccessful war campaign in France in the summer of 1544. Meanwhile, Prince Edward continued to thrive. At the age of six, he was considered old enough to be ready for a formal education, which he received from his hand-picked tutors. The all-female household was replaced by one of all men. His education was focused in the king's own words, as he recorded in his journal – on learning of tongues, of the scripture, of philosophy and all liberal sciences, as well as music, in which he became relatively proficient. He was educated not alone, but alongside the children of nobles, some of whom became friends for life, including Charles and Henry Brandon, and Barnaby Fitzpatrick, who was famously said to have been whipped in place of Edward when the prince made errors or misbehaved. The prince also received visits from great scholars and travellers who regaled Edward with their unique experiences and knowledge. It was a rounded education that only someone of his unique position would have received at the time. Queen Catherine took a great interest in her stepson's education and they shared frequent letters comparing their respective progress in Latin. It seems the prince was truly fond of his stepmother. His royal father, however, was an absent figure from whom he found little warmth for all Henry had done to ensure his birth. This was not typically a time of great sentimentality between parents and their children, with kings and their sons less so than with the common people and their offspring. Edward longed to please his father, yet he remained a distant, towering figure, often as far removed from his own daily life as those of any other subject. As 1546 dawned, the king's health was failing, With a 54-inch waist and numerous ailments, he had to be shuttled by trams along the corridors of Westminster Palace. The senior figures at court quietly began to plan for the next reign, seeking closeness to the ailing king in order to better influence his son in future. Highest in Henry's affections were Edward Seymour, brother of the late Queen Jane, John Dudley, the Lord Admiral, William Parr, the Queen's brother, Sir Anthony Brown, master of the horse, and Sir William Paget, the King's Secretary. The court was split between those that advocated religious reform, or at least prepared not to stand in its way, and the Conservative Catholics, chief among them the Duke of Norfolk. As the former factions seized their advantage, the last prominent execution of the reign saw the son of the Duke of Norfolk, the 30-year-old Henry Howard, styled Earl of Surrey and cousin to both Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, arrested for using the royal arms in his home. In an age when symbolism was important, the king saw, or chose to see, Howard as a threat, and ordered his death. Surrey, who protested his innocence to the last, was beheaded on the 19th of January 1547. His death would be closely followed by that of King Henry. The dying king now took to his bedchamber and was seen only by his most trusted advisers. He had refined the terms of his will at the end of 1546, revoking Queen Catherine's position as regent to Edward and naming 16 trusted executors, creating a regency council of equals who would act on behalf of the new king until he came of age. It was clear that Henry intended no man to take precedence over the rest, yet later this will would be ignored. By the end of January 1547 the king's death was approaching. Sir Anthony Denny was brave enough to tell him as much and Henry sent for Archbishop Cranmer to hear his final confession. By the time Cranmer arrived at the palace Henry was unable to speak and Cranmer instructed him to make some token or sign that he trusted in God. It is said that the king then squeezed Cranmer's hand as hard as he could. By the early morning of the 28th of January England's most famous ruler was dead, leaving a nine-year-old boy to succeed him. In the next episode, we'll pick up the story and discuss what happened next, as the new king's uncle, Edward Seymour, rides to break the news to his young nephew that he's now King of England. I very much hope that you have enjoyed this first episode of Untold History, and will join me for the next. Leave a like and or comment if you so desire, both are greatly appreciated. There is a lot of intrigue still to come until then keep well and talk to you soon if you would like to read the full transcript of this and other episodes of untold history you can find them at wattpad.com slash user slash joel a levy that's j-o-e-l-a-l-e-v-y thank you